This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Michigan sends a message with a national championship level performance. Next on this week's episode of Michigan Podcast. But there's going to be one team that's going to play solely as a team. No man is more important than the team. No coach is more important than the team. The team, the team, the team. Let's see for Anthony Clark. Waits for it. Yes, Clark. Hey, hey, they said you can't be Ohio State. Now what? Brady gets terrific. Present and a touchdown night again. Schultz just before Brazil got it. And a leaping interception by Woodson. Harbaugh back to throw over the middle. Caught by Collinger at the five on his feet. Touchdown, Michigan. On his way. It's good. He's 5'7", 179 pounds, a junior at Michigan. But Jamie Morris packs a wallop, and he delivers for Beauchamp. And here's your first play. Pressure coming, second. It is Glenn Steele, number 81, who fought his way through the traffic. Option. And Robinson calls his own number, and he's going to score. Oh, an easy touchdown for Robinson and Michigan. championship again because we're going to play as a team. And when we play as a team and the old season is over, you and I know it's going to be Michigan again. Michigan. Go Blue, I'm Steve Dace. Welcome to this week's episode of Michigan Podcast. And what a joyous episode it is. Man, there is nothing like winning a huge game going into a bye. The next two weeks of college football media consumption sure are sure is fun. I mean, everything that you get a chance to listen to, uh, pumping smoke, waving palm branches, singing hosannas. What a great time it is right now to be a Michigan Wolverine. What a dominant performance against Penn State. I didn't see it coming. A lot of other people didn't see that coming. It was 41 to 17. And man, if you can say this about a game that was that much of a blowout, it wasn't even that close. Michigan kicked not one, not two, not three, but four red zone field goals. Otherwise, this could have easily been a 50-burger. Penn State's points came. They had one legit drive that led to a field goal. Their other two drives were a guy overplayed an angle on a quarterback keeper, and Clifford had a nice fake on his own read and went 62 yards. And then they had to still take to fourth down to get that score despite that field position. And then, of course, the fluke pinball interception deflection uh, that went for a pick six uh, by J- off of J.J. McCarthy. That was it. 
I mean, Michigan had 18 of the first 19 first downs in this game. The final first down tally in this game was 28 to 10. Folks, that's like a Michigan Eastern Michigan kind of a game, not Penn State. And while I would agree, Penn State, not probably a top 10 team, but that's at least a top 25 team. And Michigan absolutely took their manhood away from them, which I think going into the bye and coming out of that kind of an effort calls for maybe a big picture conversation about both the program and also the the season as it is ongoing. Let's let's start with the program. I think we can say this now, and, 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 and it took longer than any of us, including probably Jimmy, thought that it would. But we are finally the program we all envisioned that we would be when Jimmy arrived here December 30th, 2014, eight years ago. You look at the physicality, the brutality, the culture, the innovation, the ruthlessness that Jimmy was known for as a head coach. It has finally now become embedded here. Despite the loss of some of the best leaders and players we've had here in decades, Aiden Hutchinson, David Ojabo, Daxton Hill, Cade McNamara, this looks almost exactly like last year's championship team. And for those of us that grew up in an era when competing for titles was the realistic perennial goal, That kind of looks and sounds familiar because there was almost a pattern to Michigan football seasons in those days. The culture was just so deep. And for those of you that are too young to know those times, you grew up in an era when Purdue beat Ohio State more often than Michigan. Well, if you're wondering what those times were like, they looked a lot like this. Now, if we talk about this season in particular, I, I previously said that this was almost the same team as last year. The almost is J.J. McCarthy. He is the outlier at quarterback that raises the ceiling here. Because even though he has not been as consistently prolific as many of us, myself included, would like to see, his mere presence on the field takes the style that fits our culture and Jimmy's brand and makes it even more devastating, and it does so for two reasons. Number one, he is a potent running threat in his own right. So you cannot get away with just ganging up on those running backs. And then number two, he can spin it and do so effectively out of the pocket. So you can't just overload the box and shoot the gaps. One team tried doing that an entire afternoon, and that was Indiana. And that turned out to be J.J. McCarthy's first 300-yard game. Many of us, again, myself included, thought that the insertion of J.J. into the starting quarterback slot meant that Michigan would evolve the offense. Instead, what we're seeing is he's expanded the existing scheme. The five-star quarterback is not the focal point of the offense. He's the final piece of it. This was confirmed against a good, probably not top 10, great, but definitely top 25 good Penn State team. They never totally sold out against the run, even when maybe they should have, because of the presence of J.J. McCarthy. He's not our Justin Verlander. He's the Mariano Rivera. He's the closer of the staff. He is not its anchor. He's what we didn't have last year, despite how much we should be forever indebted to Cade McNamara for helping to fix the broken culture here. But with J.J., we now have a quarterback that we can turn to and say, hey, it's your turn. And that makes everyone in the scheme a role player. Talented, yes, but role players nevertheless. In other words, maybe this is going to sound familiar to some of you that are my age or older. The team the team, the team. The Penn State game showed me, and hopefully others, that once and for all, we need to stop comparing Michigan's style to how Ohio State and others play. Michigan has taken old-school football and expanded it without abandoning its roots. I get the way that the Buckeyes play is intoxicating, 
It's fun to watch. Someone is setting a record every week, it seems. They are media darlings. We are not. They're a tremendous program, too. But styles make fights. USC and Oregon were that dude out west when Jimmy was at Stanford. And he conquered them both by building a brand exactly like what you see here now. Michigan's offense is not antiquated. We just think that because it runs so much. But we run a variety of personnel combinations, play and formation variations, etc. This is one of the toughest teams in college football to prepare for. This looks nothing schematically like Lloyd Carr, let alone Bo. It's just built on the same fundamentals because those have been the same fundamentals since the game was invented in 1869. The team that wins at the line of scrimmage usually wins, period. Regardless of whether we're talking the wing tee era, the wishbone, the veer, West Coast, eye formation, air raid, pistol, etc., whatever schemes that were the fad of whatever era we're talking about. In the end, games are won at the line of scrimmage. Now, none of this guarantees that we can win in Columbus. Because to their credit, Ohio State is refocused by realizing it needed to recommit to physicality as well. But it does mean we have our best chance to win there in many a moon. Let's find out what an actual living Buckeye thinks of that. Mark Rogers will join us next. Well, you've heard what I think. Let's find out what our good friend and perhaps the world's only reasonable bucknut thinks. Mark Rogers, who has a fantastic channel here on YouTube, the voice of college football correspondents and stringers all over the country. You don't want to miss it. Great information for the greatest sport on earth. It is good to have you back, Mark. How are you, brother? Steve, I'm doing well. Uh, Looking forward to uh, the rest of the season in November football. Should be Fabulous in the Big Ten. Of course, we've only got three games that matter, and one is already in the books, decidedly, and we've got two to go. So you picked Penn State to pull the upset on the show here last week, and you weren't alone. Uh, There were, frankly, a lot of smart people in the punditry across the country that did. I know a lot of uh, sharps that that I follow that uh, gamble on football and sports for a living. Uh, They picked Penn State as well. Um, The game did not go in terms of dominance the way I think anybody thought that it would. If there was ever a game where you could say it was 41 to 17 and it wasn't that close, this without, you know, uh, you know, trolling or talking smack, this would be it. I mean, Michigan left a lot of points on the field, kicked four red zone field goals in this game, had 18 of the first 19 first downs in this game. Michigan finished with 28 to with a 28 to 10 first down advantage. That's usually, you know, playing Akron or somebody in the Mac, not a top 10 team or even a top 25 team in the Big Ten. Hell, not even really a lot of teams in the Big Ten. So as you watched this unfold on Saturday and then the end result, you thought what? Well, first, most importantly, Steve, we've got to clear up the prediction record. I'm very guarded about my prediction record. Yes, you put me on the spot. I picked Penn State on Tuesday. I picked Michigan officially. Yes. Uh, There was just too much going in Michigan's advantage uh, win column uh, heading into that. Uh, The things that I think I outlined uh, why Michigan was the logical pick, but I was just kind of leaning Penn State at that point. I hope... I guess Ohio State fans, uh, the wise ones, are starting to take notice because it was a foregone conclusion for Ohio State fans leading into this season. Yeah, Michigan's got a good team. They're a good team, but we're maybe the best team in the country, and certainly we still own the Big Ten, and they've got to come to Columbus. Well, 
what we saw on display at the big house is coming to Columbus in about six weeks. And it's it's serious. It's serious. Uh, I want to give your offensive linemen some love here, Steve. This was a dominant, dominant performance. And we've mentioned it over and over, especially in the, after that uh, Iowa game. But, you know, Ryan Hayes and Trevor Keegan, Carson Barnhart, Zach Center, Sarley, sorry, I don't have them memorized, Olu Aluatimi, of course, uh, being the Virginia transfer. These guys uh, need some name recognition because they were just blowing out the Penn State offensive or defensive front, which we knew was undersized and that that would be an advantage for Michigan. But to, I believe, what your point is about Penn State status in college football, yeah, maybe they're not a top 10 team. They're not elite. You know, we could go on and take this in another direction in regards to James Franklin's inability to raise and upgrade this program. However, they just sent six defenders to the NFL draft last season. They will send a boatload more. They're a good team. They're a talented team. Um, and Michigan just destroyed them, obliterated them, just dominated physically, schematically, in every such way possible that the the matchups that I talked about last week that I really wanted to see wide receiver defensive back play on both sides really didn't factor into this because it was a bullying up front uh, on both sides of the ball by the Wolverines. I think, and I talked about this before you came on, Mark, I, I think this cements something that I was talking with you, I think it was with you about a week ago. That I, I think what happened after 2020 and the disaster of that season, when frankly Jim Harbaugh should have been fired. And if he were not one of the most decorated players in the history of this program, if he were not arguably the greatest quarterback in the history of this program, and had not turned down numerous NFL jobs to come rescue this program and then stay here uh, for the first few years after he arrived, then I think he would have. The exact same profile somebody that was not such a vested, beloved member of the family, no way he gets a chance to rebound. But he was given that chance. And I think what he did in response to that is did some soul searching and realized, you know, I have, I've kind of tried everything here to beat Ohio State and get over the hump, except what I really do best. And I think he went to the Stanford Blueprint. I think he recognized, uh, you know, last year, I, I told you last year, I chuckled at Josh Gaddis winning the Broyles Award for what? Running Jim Harbaugh's offense? Wrong Michigan assistant got that award. And you're seeing that now at Miami with him down there, okay? Um, I, I think Jim recognized, if I got to go down here, man, I'm going down my way, swinging. We're going to run my offense. And, and I think that what he, what he did at Stanford – I, you know, why try to recruit with Pete Carroll and Chip Kelly? Why try to innovate with them? Why not, why not, you know, styles make fights? Why not get them to play a style that they're not accustomed to? Penn State's uh, analyst, including a guy by the name of Jack Ham, does he know a little bit about football, do you think, uh, Mark? Maybe knows a thing or two. Uh, I, I, I was curious to get kind of some of their thoughts because I was flabbergasted at the outcome either. I did not expect it like this. Like if it was 41 to 17, I'd expect it, you know, like, we got the pass rush in there, forced three or four turnovers, short field. You know what I'm saying? I had no idea that this was going to play out the way that it did. And, and their analysts, including Jack Ham, all said the same thing. Penn State has constructed a defense, and a lot of teams in this league have, to stop Ohio State and those receivers and to figure out how to get smaller, short, you know, quicker, faster. The idea 
of someone saying, hey, we're coming downhill. Here we go. See if you can stop it. They just don't have a lot of guys with a lot of junk in the trunk, to you know, use an expression, to plop down in there to occupy a couple gaps. And there's not a lot of teams in college football that kind of do. And we saw this last year, and we're seeing it this year. And, and I thought that J.J. McCarthy would lead to an offensive evolution. Instead, what he is, is he is the Andrew Luck offensive expansion. Oh, no, we're still giving it to Toby Gerhardt 30 times. I mean, that's what we do here, okay? But rest assured that if you decide we're just going to go 8-9 in the box every down, okay, then we'll let Andrew Luck throw the football and kill you. One team we have played this year decided they were going to bring everybody downhill at the snap, Indiana. And J.J. McCarthy threw for nearly 300 yards and a half. And I think that's... That's what he has determined fits the Michigan brand, fits the tradition and culture of Michigan, and gives us a contrast where we can maybe beat or at least compete with Ohio State annually with top 10 or 12 recruiting classes when we probably can't have top five recruiting classes like Ohio State has. And, and, and maybe we compensate for that by forcing the Buckeyes to play a different style of football. And I found it fascinating that that's what the Penn State intelligentsia was talking about after that game on Saturday. Your thoughts now after maybe further demonstration of my, of my hypothesis? Well, I, I think it's uh, pretty fascinating that Michigan will continue to rely on the the type of offensive style that they've built which is extremely effective but they've got the wide receiver core and the quarterback who can threaten a defense to keep them honest and that's got to be partially why the running game is so successful you You saw that in the iowa game iowa's linebackers had to hesitate at the snap for a half a second every time and if you do that then with that offensive line, you're dead. You're dead in the water. You take one false step with that offensive line, man, you're getting dominated up front, and it's because of the threat that J.J. McCarthy might keep it. So what this does is even in a game like they played against Penn State where you only throw it 22 to 25 times and most of those aren't downfield throws, uh, but you present the threat that has to be recognized. But if you get into the shootout, they're fully capable of expanding that and playing a shootout if need be. If somebody really wants to load up against the run or if somebody's prolific on the other side of the ball scoring against their defense, which is going to be difficult to do, and it becomes more 42-38 range, they can do it. They can do it. They've shown me enough um, with their wide receiver core last year in JJ's splashes here and there, Wisconsin, and a few other times, but most notably the, the times that he's been able to air it out um, sure, he needs to uh, sharpen up those throws a little bit, but he's off by one or two throws that we've seen uh, when he's tried to take those shots downfield. That, uh, yeah, either the threat of it opens up the run, or if they need to go to it, they will probably be fully capable of doing so. Can you think of a, of a time physically? You know, we, we did this to Penn State in 2016, when they won the Big Ten that year. But remember, like, they were playing walk-on linebackers. They had cluster injuries at, on that unit, if you recall, in that game. And Saquon Barley, Saquon Barkley, I should say, and uh, uh, he's a great player, Steve. Uh, get his name right. Saquon Barkley and Trace McSorley, that was, that was pretty early in the year. That was like the Big Ten first or second game that year. And those guys, you know, with the new offensive system, weren't kind of known commodities that they were uh, by the time we got to November. And I bring that up because that might be the last time 
that I can remember a Big Ten, you know, team that recruits at the level that Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State do, that they physically did that at the line of scrimmage to the other, right? When we've seen Ohio State run people off the field, it's just, you just got mossed, you know, all over the place, right? I mean, how, how when was the last time you can recall that kind of throwback butt whooping on both sides of the line of scrimmage. Sean Clifford, seven out of 19, um, you know, uh, throwing the football. I think Penn State's running backs carried, I think, for something like 48 yards total or something in the game. So the dominance was on the other side of the line of scrimmage as well, Mark. Yeah, so the Penn State rushing attack and the numbers that they showed us are what we were used to Penn State delivering up until this season. They add the two freshman running backs, Singleton and Allen. They're exceptional. The offensive line's played better. I know Auburn's not what they typically are along the defensive front, which has been a top five defensive front in college football the past five or six years. But Penn State goes down there and lays 245 on the ground against them, and they can do nothing. Uh, the Sean Clifford numbers that you raise seem to speak to the, the average college football fan Sean Clifford detractor would say well yeah Sean Clifford's no good he went seven of 19 watch the game he was chucking the ball he was just getting rid of it uh he had no chance in that game uh as you well know Penn State pulled off two plays in the first half of the game to stay close of course smoke and mirrors uh man I I was trying to think back to Ezekiel Elliott uh, rushing days, but those were mostly, well, I guess in the playoffs, I guess uh, even this, though the score was more egregious, I don't know that the dominance was more when Ohio State laid waste to Wisconsin, 59 nothing in the Big Ten Championship yeah. game, and Zeke Elliott started his run of 230-yard rushing days. That's the first thing I can come up with. So whether we're talking 2014, that championship game there that year, or 2016, the Michigan-Penn State game that I cited, we're going back a ways, at least. We're going back a few years since we saw this kind of molly whopping. Thoughts before we get out of here, because we'll have plenty of time to next week to preview the game against Michigan State. If I had to, if I had to guess, knowing how terrible its secondary is, again, Michigan State is going to be the first team to say – um, other than, or maybe the second team to say, besides Indiana, you know what? We're just, we just can't let you do this to us all game long. And our secondary sucks anyway, so we got to take something away. All right. And if JJ McCarthy throws for 400 yards against us, so be it. But we just can't sit here as an in state rival little brother on national TV primetime at night and let you just run the ball down our throats and take our manhood away from us for 300 yards. So get the JJ McCarthy highlight tape ready to go. If I had to guess, that's what Sparty will do. But, you know, we'll talk about that next week. Let's talk about Penn State and where do you think they go from here now? Um, Franklin's record against uh, Penn St- against Michigan, uh, Michigan State and Ohio State is not very good. Um, they were 11 and 11 coming in his last 22 games coming into this season. Remember, they started five and0 last year too, and then Sean Clifford got hurt. So they were five and0 this year. Clifford, I guess was hurt. I don't know. I mean, I watched him walk up the tunnel. You know, because I watched all the tunnel videos of all the fights and the of everything. I watched him walk up the tunnel all by himself without a trainer after the game Saturday. So I, he might have just said, "Listen, man, I took enough hits. We're not winning. I'm 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 calling it a day." You can't blame him for that either. So I don't know if he's hurt or not. But you know, they've got Minnesota this week. They've still got Ohio State as well. Where do, where do you think Penn State is right now? 
the peanut butter and jelly fights, from what I understand. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Oh, my goodness. James Franklin's 0-9 against top 10 competition on the road. I think there needs to be an identity. Uh, I don't think just recruiting a bunch of athletes uh, and, and that identity isn't just schematic. I think that's a lot of it, mm-hmm. uh, but I think it it um, is just something that separates a good football coach from a great leader. And I don't want to overstate it, Jim Harbaugh being a great leader, or in the past, Urban Meyer at Ohio State, and I bypass Ryan Day just temporarily to say, okay, this is the guy that established what Ohio State football is today. Uh, but you know, the, the type of detail that we see out of a Nick Saban, he's the one that's the most famous for the process and the detail of, I am going to examine every nook and cranny of this program because this is what I want it to be. And this is what it has to be to succeed. I'm smart enough to know what I'm capable of, what type of staff I want, not just, okay, we've got an offensive coordinator position open. uh, Let's go uh, interview some guys. And every thread of grass on the field, I know everything that I want this program to be. And then I'm going to weigh that against the conference. I'm going to weigh that against the landscape of college football. And that may alter me slightly, but I still believe in my core values and what this needs to be. And I don't know that James Franklin thinks to that level or really can execute that vision if it's there. Yeah, what is their identity? Really, they've had one great season there that they didn't have Joe Moorhead call on the plays. Okay, one. Yeah. Uh, and that was the Journey Brown year when they beat Memphis in the New Year's Six Bowl. That's the that's the one great season they had there when Joe Moorhead wasn't calling the plays for Trace McSorley and Saquon Barkley, right? Arguably the best running back and quarterback and combo in the history of that program. And that's, you know, a top five, seven, eight program of all time. So that is saying something. You know, I, I don't know what their identity is. You know, with, that was the question with Ohio State when Urban Meyer moved on because he was really the Ohio State identity. And then Ryan Day has established an identity with, you know, um, uh, with his ability to call a game, that, with the stress he puts on your team offensively, their style of offense, the fleet of receivers they put on the field. Michigan has its identity with its physicality. Uh, you know, Wisconsin, good or bad, has an identity. Uh, Iowa, good or bad, has an identity, right? P.J. Fleck has an identity at Minnesota. Uh, what, what is, this is his ninth year. It's year nine. What is the culture and identity of Penn State football? What is it? And, and that's what I was leading to. It, it, I can't put a, uh, an identity on it. I, I can't label it. I can't get around it other than we go out and recruit the best possible athletes we can bring in. And when we throw them on a field together and call plays that they'll be successful, but that's not an identity. That's not a culture. That's uh, basically James Franklin. I don't want to discard him as a complete non-entity. He's obviously a successful football coach, but I think that's more about personality. That's being able to engage with young men and, you know, reel them in and build relationships and all that's very important. But in terms of overarching program uh, tenants and purposes, I don't know that it's there. Hmm. Good stuff as always, my friend. We'll talk to you next week before the big game against uh, Sparty for Paul Bunyan. All right. Take care. Sounds good, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. This week's Twitter poll results, we asked you what long-injured player does Michigan most need back for the second half of the season? 
And the majority of you, or a plurality of you, voted the same way that I did. Nakai Hill Green at, at uh, linebacker, 46.8% said Nakai. 30% said Eric All. I'd love to have him back, but uh, I mean, we're pretty deep at that spot. 12.8% said Kate McNamara, 10, who's expected to be back from Michigan State now, I'm hearing. 10.4% of you said Trent A. Jones. That brings us to our feedback of the week from Kevin Everard. Do I think Michigan could go 11-1 and and miss out on the Big Ten East but still make the playoffs? Well, funny you should ask me that because right now, Kevin, ESPN's FPI gives the Wolverines almost twice as good of odds of making the national championship game than it does of winning the, or I'm sorry, basically the same odds, I should say, of making the national championship game as it does of winning the Big Ten. Michigan has 23% odds of winning the Big Ten, 27% odds of making the national championship game. So the answer to your question is yes, but I think those odds went down after Tennessee beat Alabama because we could be looking now at three different 11-1 teams out of the SEC. Now, two of those, 11-1 or 12-0, two of those would have to play each other, of course. The winner of Tennessee-Georgia would play Alabama, likely, in the SEC championship game. But let's say Tennessee goes to Georgia here in three weeks and loses a close game. And that is its only loss. And then Alabama wins the SEC and they're in the playoff. That's going to be tough to leave Tennessee out, to put Tennessee over Michigan, even if Michigan loses a barn burner against Ohio State. I mean, that's going to be a flip of the coin. And then, and then we're assuming that Clemson doesn't run the table and go undefeated. I wouldn't assume that either. Thankfully, We do this every year. We go through these scenarios, and it seems it's going to be so convoluted. And it just has a tendency most of the time, with the exception of maybe who team number four is, it most of the time has a tendency to work itself out. So here's the best solution, the best answer. Just go win the damn thing. Then we don't have to worry about it. That'll do it for this week's episode of Michigan Podcast. Don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, share, five-star review, follow. Whichever applies, however you watch, like here on YouTube or listen, like on iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Help us to find more Michigan fans just like you. Also remember to enjoy the season. You know, the, the couple of years leading up to last year and this year should have taught us not to take this stuff for granted as Michigan fans anymore. Enjoy it. Have fun. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Michigan Podcast in between episodes. We'll be back again next week with a full Paul Bunyan preview. Until then, I'm Steve Dace. Go Blue. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.